Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Today's guest is Amy Giglio, the Chief Human Resource Officer for Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health System. The Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health System is a large health system based in New Hampshire with more than 14,000 employees. Like many executives I talked to, Amy didn't start out in the human resources field. Her undergraduate work and early career was in the field of social work. Her journey to being the chief human resource officer for the largest employer in the state of New Hampshire after the state government is interesting and the topic of the first part of the interview. We then discuss managing the human resources function for a major medical center and coordinating human resources strategy across a large system. We conclude with a conversation about leadership. And just as a note, we recorded this on site and there was a bit of background noise uh, of happy people at the beginning of the podcast, which only lasts for the first few minutes of the interview. I hope you enjoy listening to Amy's story, and if you find it valuable, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening, and here is Amy Giglio. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you for having me, Mark. So you went to Trinity College of Vermont and earned a Bachelor of Social Work. What drew you to Trinity, and specifically the field of social work? So it's interesting. Actually, I knew I wanted to go to college in Burlington, Vermont, after visiting that area. Loved it up there. It had a great vibe to it, not only from an education perspective, because there are major colleges there, about I think about five at the time, mm. but as well as just Burlington and, and what's going on in that city. So I was drawn to Trinity, actually, first to go to school for psychology, because I okay. knew I wanted to get in the field of psychology. But then after being there and talking with folks over at UVM, as well as I had a, a friend that I met at the school, um, she was actually going to school for social work. And through my discussions with her, I sort of got a feel that psychology seemed very theory-based and research-based, and I really liked that. But social work in terms of the advocacy and the resource providing to people, um, as well as the social justice aspect, mm. I actually switched my major. Okay. So... I ended up graduating with um, a bachelor's in social work, but then a minor in psychology because I okay. put so much time into that. And there's a lot of overlap, too. Yeah. But that's how I got into social work and why I was drawn to, to that area okay. in that school. So the social justice, the, the, the advocacy piece was kind of what ultimately drew you into it. and. Because your work, your first job coming out was was as a clinical social worker. It was so I actually, as a part of the social work program at the time, they had a year long internship requirement, mm-hmm. um, which was a great experience. I did my internship at what was known as Fletcher Allen Healthcare at the time. Now it's University of Vermont Medical Center, and I was a clinical social worker working on a cardiothoracic surgery unit. Um, and being mentored by a social worker there. And so I got a feel for what it was like to work in the medical field. Um, in that area, we did a lot of discharge planning, sending people to rehab. You know, a lot of people had their um, hearts worked on and they were go- going out whether to rehab or to home or maybe they were going to a, a nursing facility. And so that was my role there. And I got a feel for what that looked like. And I really liked that work. When I got out of school and graduated, I wanted to move back to New Hampshire. And when I did that, I actually had a hard time getting into hospital social work. 
which is what I was doing at Fletcher Allen. Okay. And so I was looking for social work jobs in a myriad of fields, and I ended up in mental health, which was a surprise to me because it wasn't something I was originally interested in mm-hmm. or, and frankly, knew anything about other than I was a new grad coming out of school. But they ended up hiring me. It took a chance on me. Um, and I was a social worker there working as a case manager. Mm-hmm. And um, I worked with acutely mentally ill folks that um, needed support in their community environment, whether that be at home or in a facility that they were in. And I would do in-home counseling. So as a bachelor's degree social worker, I actually couldn't bill insurance out um, in the building that I worked. So all of my uh, work was actually in the community. So I would meet people in their homes, in the facility, if they were in a facility, but also um, in coffee shops or other areas and just checking in with folks and seeing how they're doing um, in the community and and, um, linking them with resources. Okay. So this was, you were with Riverbend Community Mental Health at that time? I was, yes. So talk a little more about what that role looks like. So you you weren't a... um, uh, you weren't master's level, so it wasn't therapy. That's right. Um, so what kind of things were you you were checking in on them? What does that mean? What does that look like? So our clients that we worked with were people that needed extra supports in their environment. So it could be um, helping them with daily activities, could be going shopping, could be just checking in on symptom management, um, checking in on medication management. And so um, they would often be also linked with a therapist and coming in for more in-depth therapy. But this was just to ensure that people who needed that support were able to get that in their community through the case management um, role. But then I also, so I worked there, I think I was there probably two or maybe even close to three years when... The mental health center, and this is um, not unique necessarily to Riverbend. Other mental health centers have this, where they had a grant came in from the um, from the state to help homeless uh, individuals into services. And so I ended up transitioning and worked for the grant um, or under the grant with the homeless population, really talking to people who were not necessarily affiliated or with Riverbend for services, but we would talk about what that looked like and try to get them linked up and also to the community programs for other services that they might need. And that was very rewarding. I loved that work. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. So it sounds you were you were with uh, Riverbend for about four years, and then you left Riverbend in 2005 and joined Fidelity Investments as a team leader in survivor services. So this uh, sounds like something fairly different. What is survivor services and why would Fidelity Investments have something like that? Yeah. So it's interesting that you say that because when I talk with people about what I did in mental health and then going to the corporate world, I describe it as sort of a sharp right turn. Uh, Fidelity had a role and I think they actually still do today. I'm not 100% sure, but they outsource benefits for large organizations like General Motors and Toyota and, and other organizations that have them doing things like managing their health insurance and their retirement benefits. And a part of the suite of services that they offered were a group of individuals that handled beneficiaries when actually the employee or the retiree passed away. And so survivor services was actually working with the survivors of employees or retirees with these large organizations and helping their beneficiaries understand and take advantage of their benefits, whether that be life insurance or transferring retirement accounts. And so that's 
how I sort of made a bridge. I think the first bridge was working in social work and then moving to an area where people are grieving and need a level of support that Mm. I had a skill in providing, but then also now getting exposure to benefits and human resources functions that normally would not have access to or have exposure to. I mean, I worked with insurance when I worked with the mental health center and the community, but I didn't necessarily work with other aspects of benefits that are provided. And that's what survivor services did. Okay. Uh, I see the social work connection there. How did you get, so how did you get drawn out of the, the more clinical side and into, I mean, like, uh, what, what triggered the, the desire to make that jump? Yeah, so it's interesting. I, when I was working, you know, after I graduated, my goal was actually to go back and get my master's in social work. Mm-hmm. And with that degree, I actually, because I had a bachelor's in social work, I could have gotten advanced standing and waived some of the coursework needed to get a master's. So, of course, my supervisor at the time thought that would be a very natural transition. That was a goal of mine. But then when I was working in the field, I thought, is this really what I want to do long term? I loved what I did, but do I want to be doing therapy? And that was sort of the exposure that I had. And so I was looking for a change and something different. And when the role in survivor services opened up and I started getting exposure to the business side and human resources, I got really interested in business. And so instead of getting a master's in social work, I ended up getting a master's in business administration. Very nice. And, um, you know, it certainly was not my plan. Mm -hmm. And um, it was through this, these experiences in my work environment that really shaped where I wanted to go. And I think I made the right choice. Some days, there are some days when I look back and say, you know, that was really rewarding work. Yeah. And I think I really, really loved staying in that field. And there are days where I really like the direct care aspect of that. So it is sort of always in the back of my mind, would I ever go back and do something in social work again? But certainly, I think the business degree and, and moving forward in that realm has, has been of benefit to me. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of neat that you have that background in social work as a, you know, working in the clinical side. And now, of course, you didn't go directly into uh, clinical work. There was a little bit of a, 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 a little bit of time passes between in your career. So, uh, and ultimately, we, you wind up here. So, it's kind of a neat journey. But let's. So, so you were with Fidelity working survivor uh, services, which sounds like it, it was your kind of your entree into the human resources world. And you were there again for about four years, and then you moved to the New Hampshire retirement system where you were a team leader in member benefits. What was uh, the New Hampshire, and what is maybe the New Hampshire retirement system, and and what were you doing for them? So, you know, as life would have it, I, there were things that were happening in my life at that time. My husband had moved. I was looking for different employment to be closer to home, um, because I did have quite a commute to Fidelity. Um, And so the role opened up at the New Hampshire retirement system, and, and what they do is they provide pension benefits um, to your state, municipal, policemen, firemen, and teachers in the state of New Hampshire. So they have thousands of members that are um, both retired but also active employees that are eligible for pension benefits, and the retirement system is what provides that benefit to folks. Mm. So I um, made a transition there doing a lot of the same work, or definitely transferable, to what I was doing when I was working with benefits before, mm-hmm. but more on the HR employee side, if you will. 
Um, and I led a team there that met with re- people that were thinking about retirement or moving toward retirement and getting their benefits set up for themselves and their beneficiaries. Hmm. So how did your how did you see your social work background helping you move forward in the HR realm? Yeah, so in, from a social work perspective, the the soft skills, the how to work with people, the uh, leadership through influence and negotiation, um, all of those things that I learned when I was going to, you know, got my bachelor's degree definitely has helped me um, into the future and just relating to people and relating to people at, at, in all aspects of life with their experiences that they bring forward and, and also the times in which you're meeting with them. So I believe in situational leadership, there are going to be different types of people that you work with, but there's also people that bring experiences with them that shape how they're dealing with particular situations. And that background has certainly helped me to, to be flexible and to be agile to adapting to, to helping them. You were with the New Hampshire Retirement System until uh, 2010 when you came here to Dartmouth-Hitchcock as the Director of Benefits, Comp HR Business Partner, and Shared Services and Recruitment. So uh, a long list of, of responsibilities. And of course, that's, this is where we are today is here at, at Dartmouth. Before we kind of talk about your, your time here at Dartmouth, let's talk a little bit about Dartmouth as an organization. Where is Dartmouth-Hitchcock? What kind of organization is it? And then maybe a little bit about some of the geographic factors that, that impact the HR function here. So Dartmouth-Hitchcock is a leading health system in the state of New Hampshire. We're the second largest employer in the state of New Hampshire to actually the state um, and the state employees. Dartmouth-Hitchcock is, is a combination of an academic medical center and many ambulatory clinics uh, within our communities, and, and that geographically spans from the academic medical center that's located in Lebanon, New Hampshire, to ambulatory outpatient clinics that are really embedded in their communities in Concord, Manchester, the Nashua regions. And I say regions because there are primary care practices and other practices that are spread throughout. So it's a it's really a wide. I mean, it's got a wide geographic uh, uh, footprint in the area. It does, and and actually. Dartmouth-Hitchcock is um, a little bit different than Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health in that Dartmouth-Hitchcock has system member organizations, which Dartmouth-Hitchcock is a member of, where there's a compilation of hospitals and a visiting nurse and physician practices that span um, not only the state of New Hampshire, but we also have locations in Vermont as well, and really providing patient care to to the people of those communities in the region. Okay. Uh, so coming to Dartmouth, uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, you stepped into the director role in the HR department. So in your previous roles, you had been kind of, I guess the way I think of it as a service organization, sort of you were, so with Fidelity, you were, companies would outsource their services through Fidelity. So you were, you weren't in, inside the organization, right? You were sort of providing services to an organization uh, with the retirement system was a little more integrated, but now you're actually step you're actually coming inside an organization to provide services within the HR department. What was that like making that transition? Yeah, I think that's a great question because I never really thought of it like that in terms of being a service to an organization versus being inside. I've always sort of viewed the um, service that HR provides as a service to an individual that's within the organization. I think the biggest difference is 
in some of those other scenarios, I wasn't necessarily um, seen. People didn't necessarily know mm. who I was in the same way. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, you know, you get to work with colleagues and, and meet people and meet people on a personal level every day. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's probably the biggest distinction. Okay. So more in your one. example of being, yeah. you know, outsourced versus uh-huh. actually embedded, if you will. Yeah. I guess so more of a longitudinal relationship, perhaps. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. Okay. So now you're coming back to a clinical environment, which is, I think is kind of neat that you started out clinical, went to more of a, uh, to a non-clinical HR function. Perhaps you had some, some clinical customers, but, and then now back to a um, clinical organization. What was it like kind of coming back to the clinical environment? I would say it's coming full circle. So I specifically looked at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and other healthcare organizations because of my experience I had when I was interning. I loved that environment. I always wanted to get back to that environment. And so when the opportunity presented itself, it was sort of serendipitous that I was able to to, to re-enter, if you will, back into healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I felt sort of more at home. That's where I felt that the work and the mission of the organization really matters. And, you know, when you, when you get up out of work or go to work every day, get your feet on the ground, you know that you're walking into an organization that makes a true difference in a very personal way. Not to say that other organizations aren't making a difference because they are, but when you're delivering direct patient care, it's in a more intimate level. And so it was just, it, it worked out really well to be able to come back to healthcare and support the people who are taking care of individuals. And um, I think people from the state of New Hampshire, especially, and others nationally who know the name know that exceptional patient care is delivered here every day. And so it's just, it's been a great experience. Yeah. Was it helpful to have that healthcare background coming? I mean, does it allow you to, to maybe relate more easily to some of your, uh, the employees that you're supporting? I think it does. Absolutely. I make a little joke too, because after I got my bachelor's degree, I actually went to New Hampshire Technical Institute for nursing. Because oh, really? I thought I wanted to be a nurse, okay, uh, and a social with my bachelor's in social work, and I ended up not following through with that. Yeah. And so in this environment, I say, you know, that I really wanted to be a nurse, but I really, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't do uh, go that path. But I had always wanted to be in healthcare, so I think that background not only helps me in this environment be more relatable, but also helps me to navigate it in a different way. Um, not to say that it can't be learned, because we certainly do hire people that have not worked in healthcare before, mm-hmm. but it is a different environment that those skills definitely helped in sort of the matriculation back into it. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine you, you have some of the vocabulary, you kind of know who these, you know, these people are right from the get-go, um, you know, the different roles you would have already been familiar with, so it would be very right. helpful Yeah, I mean, I think a hospital environment is very different than a community, like when I was in the community mental health center, but certainly from the internship and other experiences, it is, um, there's some congruence there. Sure. So you came in, you had a pretty, it sounded like you had a pretty wide portfolio coming straight in. Tell tell me a little bit. So what was the role really like? I I read off a bunch of different responsibilities that I, I picked up off your, off your resume. So tell me, like, what was it you were doing? So I actually, it's interesting, I came in um, as the manager of benefits. Okay. I had applied for the director role. Okay. And through the interview process, I said, well, we're hiring a manager too. I came in as the manager and with three months, I was promoted to the director role. Nice. So okay. very kind of quick transition to that. 
And then we, we had a lot of different opportunities at the time. We were having some leadership changes. HR as an organization was sort of developing and growing. And so that presented opportunities to take on different roles while I was here. So I, I did, you mentioned I worked with recruitment. I worked with, um, we had a business partner group. And so I've done a myriad of different roles in human resources uh, right here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Dartmouth-Hitchcock is unique. Um, it's, it, it's unique to, um, not unique in that, you know, large organizations in HR often have specialized functions versus there are other organizations, human resources does everything. It's more of a generalist model or their HR specialist does all aspects of HR, whether that be benefits or compensation or employee relations. Here at DH, we're very specialized. So when I started to be a leader of these different groups, they were different departments with different needs. And we're really, we started to pull together, how do we work as a, a team to demonstrate one human resource function to mm-hmm. the organization, even though we're seven departments, for example, okay. um, that we're made up of. So you were in that role as director for about five years, then promoted to vice president of Total Rewards in 2014. What is, what is Total Rewards? I know it's fancy, fancy human great. resources yeah. language. Yeah. So Total Rewards essentially chan- translates to uh, benefits, salary and compensation. Okay. And then we have a group that's, uh, we, called, we call human resources information systems. And what they do is they manage the technology in which we deliver our benefit programs, our compensation programs, our performance appraisal process that happens. And so those three departments really make up total rewards. And the concept behind that, some organizations actually have wellness, they may have other Mm -hmm. um, departments that are a part of that, but really what is is trying to be conveyed there is that when, as an employee, you take advantage of many different rewards or the organization is providing that to you, this is bringing together in a total package. So when you're looking at your compensation, let's also take a look at what your employer is offering you from a benefits perspective, a time off perspective. You know, do I have a retirement account? Am I eligible for a disability if I were to get hurt? You know, what are the different rewards, if you will, or perks to working at the organization? And combining that with compensation gives you that total picture. Yeah. And so you work to explain that to an employee when bringing them on, or how does how does that discussion happen? How does how does your organization get involved with that? We do so um, when someone is hired, we talk about the total package in terms of compensation and the benefits that are offered. We also, when employees come on board with us, we have what's called a total reward statement that shows with real dollars what. People are getting paid, but then also what is Dartmouth-Hitchcock contributing toward your health insurance? What is Dartmouth-Hitchcock contributing toward your retirement? And you can see it, if you were to imagine sort of a pie graph, this is the total amount that the organization is providing you, um, really in exchange for services that you're providing the organization. So how how does the organization support you as an employee to be your very best? And so we provide a statement that, that helps that many organizations do now as they're trying to explain what does that package actually equate to um, because it is multifaceted. Yeah. How has that evolved over time? So as a strategy, has total rewards evolved in the time you've been working in it? 
Absolutely. I think that human resources has evolved, mm. even in the time I've been in it, but just over the past 20, 30 years where we've looked at human resources as a sort of traditional personnel management function to more of a strategic partner that has a rewards program, that has a learning and leadership development program that allows you to advance in your career, that has programs that support how do we engage employees in a different way. So that strategic shift has changed some of the language that HR professionals now use when they're describing, whether it be the department, as you suggested, or the services that are provided, trying to look at it more holistically than you know, we manage policies and compliance and those other aspects that oftentimes HR is known for. Right. And so we're really trying to shift the profession, but then we shift our language so that it means something to employees as well. Like the history of the of the department was like was once upon a time it was personnel, right? And and that was right. a very tactical kind of like we're gonna make sure you get paid, we're gonna hire you, we're gonna, but a very kind of um, kind of a lower level functional focus. And then I kind of it has evolved to human resources. And now I hear a lot of talent management or right some or that framing. Do you kind of use that language as well? We do. Yeah, if you think about it as from a spectrum, from the more sort of transactional, like we'll process your benefits, Mm -hmm. pay your paycheck, you know, make sure that you get a performance appraisal every year, those sort of functions to, you know, how do we develop and um, have offerings for learning and growth and have a more strategic aspect to HR that's a partner to the business. So as the business has strategic goals, how is HR engaging people to move forward with those business goals, but then also um, being a strategic partner in helping um, grow the organization to be a high-functioning organization. So you were in the role of Vice President for Total Rewards up till 2017 when you were promoted to Chief Human Resource Officer for Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And now is that a is that role a system level role, or is that just the um, as we were talking about Dartmouth Hitchcock, the facility as opposed to the system, or is it kind of a blended role? It is. Uh, I would say it's both. Okay. So right now I'm wearing two hats: the chief HR officer for Dartmouth Hitchcock, and also for the system. Each organization within our within our system has a leader of human resources. And actually, before this discussion, I was coming from a meeting where we get together and we talk about what's the strategy, where are we going. Workforce is a big topic of discussion at the time. So we we come together and we collaborate on system goals and where we're taking. There are a lot of organizations in which we're integrating with. So we may be providing some of the services like benefits management, for example, more centrally now and so those are the, the that's the work that we do so to directly answer your question it's it's a dual role okay so that's an interesting point uh, so it's a large system maybe getting larger with uh, there's there's mergers kind of underway is that one of the is one of the benefits of being a system that you can centralize certain functions to to reduce maybe reduce the duplication of effort in other places Yes. So um, we do examine ways that we can leverage the benefits of the system and provide a service in a more efficient way, to your point, um, reducing duplication, increasing standardization of certain aspects of what we do, and leveraging the technology 
and people that we have within the system to perform those functions. Well, what, so what kind of, uh, of, of things are you looking to, what kind of functions would you be looking to centralize and be able to take advantages of that scale? So we actually, we use the term integration okay. here. So we, we have integrated for some of our system members the uh, management of benefits, for example. So we do have a technology platform that we provide that allows people to enroll in their benefits online. We've also done that for payroll. So I would say back to the conversation we had about the relationship on those transactional services, mm -hmm. that's a lot of the integration in HR is how do we leverage economies of scale on those services and technology and systems um, across our groups. Um, on the strategic side, we have launched an integrated employee engagement survey. So as from a Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health perspective, we look at ourselves as one collective group of organizations that um, how do we become an employer of choice for our region? And so employee engagement in our work environment and how do we increase um, our experience as employees as much as we're doing for our patients already in terms of the patient experience, we've launched an engagement process across our system. So there are certain services that may not be on that transactional spectrum that we are integrating. Another one is we have a Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health learning program for our leadership to say, you know, how do I come within the system if I'm hired in new or maybe promoted from within? How do I get more awareness of myself so I can be better about leading my teams? How do I lead an effective team or build an effective team? How do I work within uh, multiple departments? How do I work within the system? And helping our leaders to navigate what can be a complex system, but then also giving them some of the leadership skills and competencies that we're looking for within a Dartmouth-Hitchcock health leader to be effective in our healthcare organization. I made a point earlier in terms of you know my career and people that I've hired, some people don't have healthcare experience. Mm. And so understanding the nomenclature, understanding the cultural aspects of that is important. And we do that training in our leadership development program. Oh, neat. So if someone's coming from the outside that has skills that you need, but they don't have experience in the industry, you give them a little orientation or some sort of orientation to the, the culture and the... We do. We do. And a lot of that, I would say, the best learning is in your department, right? And with your leadership there and with your colleagues. And I always encourage people to find a mentor. It doesn't necessarily have to be your leader. It can be someone that's outside of your department um, or someone that you've just maybe been referred to to help you navigate that. But we do talk about in our programs what it means to be a quality organization, a high reliability organization, and that links to patient care, but then also how we function and, and uh, connect with each other toward that. So you were talking about uh, uh, learning and development, leadership development. So this would be things like first-time supervisor training, perhaps? It is. And beyond that as well? or. So we have, what I just described was, is your first-time supervisor training mm -hmm. that we actually just launched. And this is um, the system-wide training that we just launched and did a pilot of and will launch more formally next year. We also have sort of, say, a mid-level, if you will, um, the next sort of step-up leadership training that's a 10-month program oh, wow. that is a development program that we've partnered with one of our trustees on 
to really develop the next generation of leaders that we see potential in. Those leaders come in as teams. And so they're working in a cohort model over the 10-month period. And then after the 10 months is over, they're producing and presenting a capstone project of something they've chosen to work on in their department or something that they wanted to change to benefit the health system they present to us. And and it's a really great event because we bring some of our trustees in and some of our key leaders and we're just in awe at what they've learned and the growth that they've had over the 10 month period with all the skills they've developed to really apply it back into their departments. That sounds like a great program. It is a great let me, program. Let me com- compare a little bit between, so what will you? What do you do for say a, a first time supervisor? And what kind of skills are you trying to give them so that they can be successful? And then how does that compare to you, the second program you talked about? It's clearly different population, yeah. but I'm, I'm curious by contrast, um, yeah. what they look like. So first coming in, I would say, the, and it's a, this is a new program um, that we have that we've just launched, but it starts with more development of understanding what it means to be a leader. What are some of those competencies we're looking for? What do you see within yourself? Getting to know yourself so that you can be better at communication and other aspects of leadership that could be more effective. Then we talk about uh, critical conversations. We're also layering in some aspects of just how we manage people and teams and processes and how to navigate our system for that. So some of it is more tactical in that way. And then we talk about what does it mean to actually be working within a system. And so that is sort of your first time we're weaving in things like performance management. We're weaving in things, critical conversations. On our 10-month program, we're doing some of the similar aspects, but we also talk about leading through influence, how to problem solve, gaining more in the financial acumen, how do I take a project to fruition, how do I execute in a complex environment. We've got some simulation that we do in that uh, program. I'm really proud of the team that um, developed the program because it's, it's really top-notch. They get experiential learning, they get on-site um, support, and then there's also content that we're doing online as well. And so that combination really at the end is producing or working toward their capstone project. Neat. So, so you say a 10-month program. Is that a full-time job or is that something they're doing kind of part-time in addition to their regular duties? They're doing it part-time in addition. Okay. It's... Um, it's very similar to um, other programs. There, you know, other programs that are fellowship or more longitudinal in nature, where there there's a, a myriad of on-site and some online. Um, we do anticipate it could be about four hours a week mm-hmm. um, that people are dedicating to that, mm-hmm. and so and they're but they're working within their teams too. So as we work with each other and colleagues, some of that's happening in the daily environment. That sounds really neat. How does somebody get identified to go? You said these are. High performers. So how do how do you pick somebody that's going to go into this program? Is this a, is this a thing? It sounds like it's a thing you do before you get maybe put into a higher level role, or is it, or do you get put into sometimes, it because you're into a higher level? Um, a lot of times, sometimes, but sometimes people are already coming in as leaders mm-hmm. as well. Um, it's an application process, mm-hmm. and so we go through a review. And because it's a team approach, there are departments that may be identified that we want to apply. But normally, it's um, they have to have a sponsor within their executive level. 
that's saying, you know, I want this team to come forward and these are the individuals and why, but they apply and then they're chosen. And we usually have a wait list. And so we will cycle that out and we'll bring those people in the next time. Wow, that's a neat, it sounds like a great program. Yeah, um, it is. Very exciting. It is. What else do you are you doing in that learning and leadership development segment of, of the organization? So we have a, a whole catalog of professional development opportunities that people can take advantage of. Mm-hmm. So we have some online courses mm-hmm. that folks can take. So we have a su- subscription service, um, and also we provide some of that content ourselves that people can take advantage of. We have a learning management system that provides that to them or to employees. And then people have now a transcript online of things that they've taken that all contribute to performance, mm-hmm. right? If, if a leader wanted to look back, that's, that is logged. We also have on-site courses, in-person courses that we offer. So we offer uh, DISC training, which is um, getting to know oneself. You may right. be familiar. I'm familiar with DISC, yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's like a personality indicator kind of thing. It is. It is. It's very similar, kind of along the lines of an MBTI, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. So we do that. We do critical conversations. We also have, and what I'm describing to you is um, offerings that we have within human resources, mm-hmm. but we also have other offerings within our Value Institute mm-hmm. at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Yeah, I've talked to Sam Shields. Okay, great. Yeah, so um, Sam and his role leading operational excellence, there's um, courses that people can take advantage of with the belting process of uh, similar to Six Sigma or lean processing, where people can go through a yellow belt or green belt process within our organization. We have a fantastic simulation center here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock as well. So there's clinical offerings. I would say being an academic health system, there's both offerings in-house, whether it be through Human Resources, the Value Institute. We have a center for learning and professional development. We also have a relationship with Dartmouth College. There's offerings as well there. And then we provide services, professional development services for people who want to go on to maybe get a degree through tuition reimbursement and other means, other scholarships. So I always say to people, if there's something that you're interested in, just ask because <laughs> we may have something that you can plug into or we'll help you get there. Yeah. I mean, so you make an interesting point. Of course, this is an academic medical center. So unlike, say, another, like a, if we were at a manufacturing plant, or, I mean, almost everybody that works here has got a credential that they have to maintain and they have to continuously do, do some sort of continuous learning in order to sustain that. How much do you interact with, so I assume like Department of Nursing probably has an education uh, function and some of the other, and then of course you're attached to a, a medical school and you have uh, Dartmouth College just at, you know down the street. How does your role interact with coordinating um, all those services? How much are they, how much are they kind of centrally coordinated and communicating with each other? I would say we are in constant communication about what we're delivering. There are different things that are, like you mentioned, nursing education. We are very closely partnered with them, but we may not deliver the education. It is coming from nursing or our Center for Professional Development and Learning. So we do have a small steering committee um, that has members of the Center of Professional Development, the Value Institute, Human Resources, and we'll get together and we'll talk about you know, what is it that we're offering? Are we duplicating services? We try not to do that. 
Oftentimes we will pull leaders from our organization to be faculty in some of our development programs. And so that gives opportunity for the integration as well. So it's not 100%, you know, there's always something that's being delivered that we may not necessarily be coordinated on, but for the most part, we really try to be. And I think organizations like ourselves, uh, in terms of the, the depth and breadth that we have here, that's always a consistent challenge is to say, you know, what is being offered and where, and where are our gaps too? There could be some things that we may not be offering that we could be, and collectively we come up with that and we can deliver something really special. I think it's just an intro. The fact is, this is also an, it's it's a hospital, but it's an educational institution. It is. So there is that kind of continuous education going on around you. So, but you as the chief human resource officer have to be worried about, to some degree, the, I mean, we've been talking about workforce development. So a piece of that sustaining the, sustaining the credentials of all the providers, for example, is a thing that you, maybe you're not directly over you're not directly overseeing that's being done by some of the clinical uh, uh, areas but it is a thing that you have to worry about absolutely at, because you worry about workforce maintenance and development kind of uh, overall that's right yeah so we um, do need to make sure that people are keeping up with their continuing education as well as their licenses and certifications to be able to provide patient care um, but in there are other aspects that are not patient care where people are maintaining some of those credentials as well, and we help them with that to the extent we can. Some of that is self-learning. They know they have a particular uh, certification that they're maintaining, and, and they know how to navigate that, and other times we need to we need to help support it. But you're right, there, there are attachment points to human resources in any hospital environment, whether it's an academic health system or not, where you want to make sure that those, those aspects are are being held. Yeah, I think it's just one of the unique things about about healthcare is so we have so many credentials and so many of our employees in order to continue to do their role have to That's right. do this continuous continuous learning process. Right. In, in and addition, some, yeah. And some of that we um, we seek external to the organization as well. So people attend conferences and make a continuing education credit through the conference. And so we just ask that they come back and they log that with us so that we know that they're maintaining it, but then also it helps with their own professional development. We've talked about a few things. Uh, we've been talking about workforce development. You said you were just meeting with your colleagues from, the, uh, from, from around the system. New Hampshire has a very low unemployment rate, which I know yes. you're dealing with. So, yes. so there's got to be a, a bit of a struggle how does that affect, you know, kind of your, your talent management, your, your talent acquisition? You know, what are you, what kind of strategies are you working with your uh, colleagues from around the system to, to you know, kind of deal with that tight labor market that you're in? And then I think you have, like you mentioned, we have, you have a facilities in Nashua. That's a, one of the larger, so for folks that aren't familiar with New Hampshire, that's one of our larger cities. We're up here in Lebanon, which is relatively rural. I mean, this, we got the town, but there's not a lot around the town. Right. So we have a relatively smaller population. So what are the unique challenges of, of um, talent management at the system level? Or, or well, I guess maybe and the system components. Yeah, I think that's a great question um, because you're right. New Hampshire right now is at almost, a, I think, a net zero to some <laughs> degree um, unemployment rate. And the labor market has gotten very tight. I would say that's also exacerbated by healthcare workers just nationally. Mm -hmm. um, is there's an impending, or I think we're there for some of the roles, workforce shortage. 
And so we've, we've really taken a hard look at this and over the past few years have developed some internal programs to help mitigate that for jobs that we're not seeing the, the uh, colleges and universities producing anymore, if you will. Um, and so we have a Workforce Readiness Institute that's in-house. It's a training program that was developed in 2014 where we have faculty in the program. We are training and educating some of the technical roles that we really have hard time filling because the local market we can't find some of these technical roles. So we bring in people who may not have thought about healthcare as a career um, or may have a second career or may be underemployed and provide them the skills necessary to do some of these technical roles. And when I say that, I'm talking about medical assistants and pharmacy technicians, uh, surgical technicians, and they go through a training program and graduate and then we employ them. And that program has been very successful we started with licensed nursing assistants as well as medical assistants and now we've grown that now we're doing pharmacy technicians and, and surgical technicians we also have a fellowship with our physician assistant program and, and that profession as well so the uniqueness about being in a healthcare environment is that we have many different roles at many different levels and when we're trying to attract and retain people we really need to be creative on how we do that and I think that was your point in terms mm -hmm. of um, our different geographic locations, also, right. as well it's as a different talent to pool. Be in Lebanon than than in Nashua. Right? It is. It is very different, and we're also working in a health system as well. And so we've got multiple locations that we want to try to fill for these roles. And so some of these workforce development programs that we've developed in house, we are now doing in other locations within the health system to help with the same. Uh, shortage uh, that we're all feeling. How much do you, again, going to that system concept, how much is, how much are you trying to standardize benefits and compensation across the system? And how much is customized, customized? How much is unique to the market? Yeah, it's interesting because it's something we're consistently evaluating is what do, what can we or should we be standardizing versus what's germane to whether it be that location or a particular culture um, in terms of the offerings. There are some things that we have been more consistent with, offering similar programs, not exactly the same, but health insurance is one of those where we have very similar programs across our system that are being offered. There are some other programs that we're perhaps looking to do into the future and evaluating right now. So we, we're evaluating what the strategy looks like. One of the things that we have to keep in mind is we do have people that, and, and this is a benefit of working within a system, is you can work in many different environments. And so we're trying to make that a smoother transition as people may want to work in a particular location and go to a different environment and not have a, a large change for them in terms of some of those offerings. We haven't... So we've talked kind of about workforce and talent acquisition benefits. What about employee relations? What is employee relations and why is it important? Yeah, so employee relations, um, I've always described it as sort of the, the stewards of the health, safety, and well-being of the organization. And that's both for employees and for leaders. That team fields a lot of questions. It uh, fields many different questions, maybe not necessarily in that particular domain. People call them about how, how do I navigate this particular life event I'm going through? I'm having a conflict in my environment. 
this event happened. I don't know how to handle this event. So they're really the sort of advisor to employees and leaders about how to navigate situations. And some of those situations are interpersonal and some of them are environmental and some of them are maybe just how do I take care of myself and take care of my, my work um, at the same time and helping people navigate those, those situations. What makes a good HR partner in employee relations, in the employee relations role? I would say a, a very strong listener someone who's attentive to really what the needs of the individual are and what the needs of the organization are. The employee relations also sort of manages the guidelines for which we work. So think about some of our policies and procedures that help to maintain that health, safety, and and well-being of the organization. They're stewards of that. So someone who has a clear understanding of what that looks like and is a fair adjudicator to some navigating some of these complex work issues um, or interpersonal issues that come up. How big is your team? So we have um, slightly actually over 100 um, human resource professionals system-wide. Okay. And how many employees system-wide so we get a sense of what you're supporting? So we, that's a great question. So we're almost 14,000 strong. Wow. So only 100 people to support 14,000. That's a lot. Absolutely. That's a big organization. So you mentioned a minute ago, we've been talking kind of back and forth about the, the kind of specific functions, but also the fact that this is, in fact, a, a system. Uh, and you mentioned culture a minute ago. Mm-hmm. I'm curious your thoughts on, because this is, again, this is a system it has, over time, has integrated other organizations. How does culture work in a system? And how unique are the cultures of the different component organizations? And what's your role in HR in terms of kind of maintaining, nurturing, and kind of developing the culture that is desired? That's a lot of, bunch of different things. But. Yeah, no, I think that that is a great question because... We are a system that's made up of many different organizations and has many different departments within those organizations of which the culture can be different. And so um, one of the things that we have found that sort of rings true in every organization is that people who come and work in healthcare have a particular mindset to work for a mission-driven organization that helps people. And so I would say that we are a community and family-based culture that is germane to virtually any location that we're working within. Um, Our teams are very collaborative. They want to work together. They want to do what's right for the patient or for the service um, that we're delivering. But there may be certain aspects to a particular location that's very unique to how they approach that or to maybe some traditions that have been within that organization that are maintained. So one of the things that we have kept more localized is the way that employees are recognized, for example. So when we think of some of these larger programs that we offer that span across many locations, employee recognition is one that we've said is more germane to that culture and how people want to be recognized both by employees, but also how you might want your leader to recognize you. And so those programs are more localized programs because we want to maintain that piece. Again, we're an evolving health system, so who knows how we will integrate some of that. But I would say that, you know, people 
take a lot of pride for the organization that they work in and take a lot of pride for the health system that they're working in. And I think some of the values that the health system, as well as each organization espouse are the same, but the way that we approach our work may be a little bit different by location. What initiatives are you most excited about right now that you're doing either at the system level or locally here at the medical center? Yeah, I would say the ones that I'm most excited about are addressing the workforce challenges that we have in our state. I know you mentioned that. That is something that we're really excited about is how do we become more efficient as a health system? How do we attract and retain the best talent to our system and become an employer of choice? We have a lot of programs and services that we're delivering right now that are all contributing toward that. It's a major component of our strategic plan that we just launched as a Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health System and something that we're working collectively around each organization on. So that, I would say, is probably the initiative that I'm most excited about. The other is our emerging uh, development programs. So the leadership development program I mentioned, the one that we had the pilot on, and we'll expand that. And I think all of these components contribute to employee engagement and employee experience. And so I see that as sort of an outcome, if you will, Mm. of the programs that we're delivering. Greater engagement. Greater engagement, absolutely. Um, And so I'm excited to see how that that will come to fruition. So you've mentioned engagement a couple of times. That's a word that you hear you know, in, in leadership a yeah. lot these days, you know, what does that mean? When, when HR is talking about employee engagement um, or we're surveying for employee engagement, what are we asking about? What does it mean? Why do we care? Yeah, that is a great question because employee engagement is not just a survey. I mean, I think a lot of times we hear it in the context of this is our engagement. This is our survey we did. This is how we scored on that. Right. I, th- I When I think of engagement, I think of it more as a feeling It's a part of how an employee feels when they come to work. How does their work environment, how how engaged are they with their leadership, with their colleagues? Are people willing to go above and beyond for the organization? Are there barriers or are they removed to actually doing work? And so the survey itself is one way we can test for those things. Right. Yeah. Obviously, engagement the, is not the survey. Right. It's, it's, it's a, that's a tool to try to measure it. Exactly. But yeah. I, I see it as um, to what degree are your uh, work, is your workforce willing to go above and beyond? Yeah. How engaged are they in the work? Yeah. So versus satisfaction. So we used to, okay. we used to look at employee satisfaction. Uh-huh. Um, how satisfied are you? I think what engagement does is sort of flips the conversation to say, you know, how do you contribute and how does the organization contribute to making this the best place it can be to work? Yeah. You, I mean, I think every organization hopes to get that discretionary effort, right? To, right. to the above and the beyond that you were talking about. Like, I can come to work and I can punch my clock, you know, punch, punch in, kind of muddle through the day and then punch out and go home and, and forget about work. But we're after something more than that. That's right. right. Absolutely. I think you described it actually very well, is the discretionary effort, the willingness to go above and beyond, to problem solve, you know, to to help the work environment be the best it can be. Yeah. I mean, I think most people come to work and they want to make a difference, especially in healthcare, right? So so you said taking away barriers, uh, how how can we get the organization out of the way? Is that kind of what we're after? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's both what's the organization doing to create and foster a healthy work environment, and it's employees thinking about 
how can I contribute to that in a way yeah. that's very meaningful? We had your CEO, Dr. Conroy, out to UNH uh, two years ago, and we talked a little, and, and she was on a uh, women in leadership panel. And one of the themes, of course, that we talked about was diversity and inclusion. Yes. So that's a, a thing that, we, that you worry about in HR. Talk, talk a little bit about what do those phrases mean? Because they, they mean different things. I, mm-hmm. At least that's how I, I see them as somewhat different. How, how, how are you working with issues around diversity and inclusion here, uh, here at the medical center and then system-wide? Yeah, so we actually, um, we had that discussion just today about uh, what does it mean to be an inclusive environment? Mm-hmm. And I sort of believe that if you create a sense of belonging and people feel trust and that they are included in decisions and as well as uh, participating in where we're going as an organization, that diversity will come. Um, because what people will see that as a place that they would want to work, that they feel that they can belong and they can make a positive contribution. And so we are, I would say, at a tipping point within the organization to reevaluating what we're doing in this space. So we have a, a group of individuals that comes together and talks about you know, what are some of the things that we can be doing. There's also a connectivity with our communities. And some of our organizations across our system have real efforts right now to sort of test for what are some of the programs that we're doing and, and how are we marketing and how are we branding ourselves to really get that point across that this is a place where people can really come and thrive how do, how do you create an organization and how do you, in your role in human resources, how do you help the managers and, and, and the teams actually you know, doing the work in the organization? How do you help them become more inclusive? So I think it's, um, it's a combination of helping leaders and individuals see within themselves what some of their maybe implicit bias is or are, um, how the language that we use when we're talking with each other, um, to be sensitive to different um, opinions and types of individuals, and being open to hearing different perspectives. We, as a part of our development program, we talk about that. How do we create sort of an environment where people feel included and are respected and are celebrated for their differences? Aside from some of the other aspects that I would say are in the HR realm around, um, you know, just maintaining a healthy work environment. But, the, but it is something that we are seriously looking at and how do we enhance the programs that we have in this space. And I think there's a heightened awareness of it in healthcare and as well as under other industries with looking at what is opportunities for advancement for people and how people are able to navigate that and how the leadership can support that um, within the organization. When I interview healthcare executives, one of the one of the leadership questions I like to ask is what's a leadership lesson that you learned the hard way? And I would say of the you know, 60 or 70 leaders that I've talked to now, one of the most common responses is that they hired the wrong person. For whatever reason, they they rushed into hire. It's usually because they're being rushed into a hiring decision, uh, or they they feel okay. The budget's not going to be if you don't make the hire this you know within the next month, you're not going to have the budget again or something like that. And the second, probably the second most common is they wait too long to fire someone. So it's the hiring and firing, uh, which are clearly in the HR realm. How do you help managers 
avoid the first, the hiring the wrong person, and then and then how do you help them making the hard decision that maybe this person that we did bring on board isn't the right fit for the organization? Yeah, so that's a great question. Well, we, in, in terms of our talent acquisition department, we have several recruiters and leaders that are helping our leaders and manager, hiring managers become very astute at what is it that they're looking for. We conduct behavioral-based interviews to get a feel for not only what are some of the technical skills that we're looking for, but what are the behavioral expectations and fit questions to really test for how people problem solve, how they approach certain situations, what are their values, how do they approach their work. So that um, ideally through that questioning, both can they do the job, what are their job competencies, and do they have the behaviors that we're looking for, the fit comes together with that. Now certainly there are times when that doesn't all match up and somebody comes and that may not be the right fit for the organization and we work with our leaders to really test for that and make sure they're making the right decision if they choose that this just person is not going to work out. Um, but we really try hard, and I think our leaders try to do a, a good job with testing for both of those aspects so that when people enter the work environment, and we also go through multiple interviews for roles as well, that they're entering the environment and we know we know their qualifications as well as um, how they'll they'll work with us. A related question. Every organization has turnover. Is some turnover good? And what's a healthy level of turnover? Yeah, I mean, I do think that some turnover is good because there are individuals that may find that this work environment is not one for them. And so we're looking for people that really want to come and work here and stay here and thrive over time. So I think when you say healthy turnover, that's what I think of Mm -hmm. in terms of that. Yeah. But there's also the other side of turnover where we have people that leave that are very unexpected. And there may be knowledge lost with that. There may be gaps in our ability to have a service. And so we want to try to prevent that if we can, which gets back to some of the other aspects of what does it mean to actually work in this environment and what are the services and programs and, you know, that we're offering that helps to support employees um, to stay. So finish up our, our conversation specifically about HR. Let's say you're at a cocktail party and someone asks you what you do and, and you say, well, I'm, you know, I'm the chief human resource officer for Dartmouth-Hitchcock. What are they most likely wrong about when they, you know, when they hear I work in HR? Uh, what, are the, what are the erroneous assumptions that people make about, about the role? Some of the things actually you talked about in terms of, you know, so we bring people on board and we performance manage and we help people um, exit the organization and some of those misnomers about sort of the old theory about yeah. what HR actually does. Yeah. So a lot of the things that we talked about today in terms of leadership de- development and training and education, being a strategic partner to the business, helping to advance the goals of the organization are aspects of HR that may not necessarily be known. And when you say being at a cocktail party, I would say that it depends on where the what industry the person's coming from. Because okay. HR, I think, looks very different in different industries, and the needs of different departments and organizations are very different. So their experience with human resources may be different than the experience that you would get here or what we're trying to deliver and, and take a lot of pride in delivering here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. 
So I want to ask a couple of leadership questions. So transitioning out of your specific role and more generally, how would you describe your leadership philosophy? So it's funny because there are many different types of leadership philosophies out there. And in HR, you know what some of those are because that's thing, those are the things that we study and we talk about and we, and we um, use in our development programs. But I would say my personal philosophy is to be an authentic leader. And so I've always sort of had a guiding principle of just doing the right thing and being authentic in approach and things, positive things will come out of that. I sort of felt like you never can be faulted for doing the wrong, to do, for doing the right thing. Um, and so authentic leadership, I think, is something that a lot of leaders are striving for. With that comes a sense of vulnerability about who they are and what their quirks are maybe sometimes and what their strengths are. And so being authentic and being vulnerable and sharing that with people, I think, is leadership's qualities that many leaders are afraid, actually, to, to do or to show. But I think it's it, those are leadership qualities that really help to be relatable to, to employees that people will want to follow and will, that serve the organization well. So going in that vein, both as a senior leader yourself, as well as a person who worries about good leadership, what are the characteristics that make a good leader? Similar to the authentic leadership sort of answer that I gave, I think having a strong sense of you know, moral compass and values that are identified and that you stick to when times get can get challenging, but also to, to really capitalize on what your strengths are and find out what those areas are and, and how do you use them to your advantage um, when you're working with individuals or through situations and problem solving. Other characteristics are you know being a good listener, being an active listener, being available to employees and to the people that are following you. You may not necessarily, I, I don't believe that you have to have people reporting to you to be a leader. You can be a leader of a function or of the work that you're doing. You don't necessarily have to manage people. I think sometimes that uh, people associate those two things strongly. I would say a characteristic um, of a good leader is is really just the behaviors that you exhibit that are um, fostering a supportive environment. So you're a you're kind of the the organizational expert on hiring. So. I don't know about that. We've got a lot of leaders that do a great job at, at hiring. Yeah. Okay. And okay. Uh, sure. <laughs> but you happen to sit in the in the in the role of, of overseeing this. Yeah. So, what do you personally look for when you're hiring a new leader? Yeah, I would say a strong aptitude for challenge and work, and also uh, ability to be agile to change. I think in healthcare, especially, we have a changing environment that we're living within, and so being flexible to change. A leader that speaks with conviction and is confident in the work that they're doing can make decisions and can move decisions forward. I do look for people who can problem solve, sort of take things apart and put things back together and help relay very complex messages in an easy way for people to understand so that people understand the direction and vision of where of where we're going, and then somebody who ex- espouses some of those other uh, characteristics I previously mentioned about just being authentic, being themselves, doing the right thing, and having open communication along the way. I think those are those are things that I look for. 
alongside job competency and the, the, sure. the skill needed to right. actually to do the work that we're doing. So you got to be able to show you can actually do the job, but then there's the fit element. Right. And the behaviors. Yes. Behaviors. Yeah. So I want to ask you the question I mentioned that I asked senior leaders earlier, which is what's a leadership lesson that you had to learn the hard way? So something maybe you made a mistake and had to had to kind of back up and, and think about how and, and then maybe taught you a lesson. Yeah. Well, so I was I'm glad you asked me that, because when you were saying that some of the other individuals may have said, you know, about hiring mm-hmm. and um, and uh, people who weren't a good fit decisions, I think my biggest leadership lesson is really this this notion of trying to have it together all the time. So in a leadership role, a lot of leaders and, and myself included, I would say early on in, in my work is this sort of sense of sort of perfectionism and everything has to be a particular way. And I think being vulnerable and being authentic and taking risks and making mistakes is all a part of the leadership journey. And that's how you strengthen that. And I think um, especially new leaders coming into that role will often get caught in that, 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 that cycle of, you know, things have to be either my way or perfect. Mm-hmm. And that puts a lot of pressure on your team to be like you. And that may not necessarily be where they are. And that certainly doesn't uh, contribute to an inclusive environment when you're looking for diversity of thought and um, experience and how people would approach things. There's a lot of literature out there that bringing people in from different backgrounds and different perspectives enrich the work product or the outcome you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that would be my biggest leadership lesson. Okay. So last question. As I've mentioned, I teach undergrads who are interested in going into, into healthcare management. Why should they consider going into human resources as their field? Well, I think, uh, you know, I have a little bias with human resources, but I would say that HR is a professional field that you can get into that has many different um, aspects to it. So there are many different um, roles that you can play in supporting people to be their very best, whether that be helping to recruit people into the organization, supporting and advising people while they're here, developing them. So a career in human resources gives many different options um, to support the organization and its mission. Great. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.